1: Welcome to Go Green Radio, everybody. So glad that you could join us today because we have such a great guest. We have Trent Romer with us, and he's got a brand new book out, just came out a couple of months ago, called This Is Our Home, a sustainability story to help you start your own eco-friendly journey. And I read it cover to cover. I loved it. And I hope that you guys will pick up a copy for yourselves after we listen to Trent talk about some of the, the high points. I promise you, no matter what I ask him, we are only hitting the wave so, you're going to have to get the book in order to dive deep, and you're going to want to. So, welcome to Go Green Radio, Trent. We are so glad to have you on the show. Thank
2: you so much for the opportunity. I'm excited to, to have the conversation.
1: Me too. And I, I want to start by asking you, because this will kind of frame it up for our listeners Who is the target audience for your new book, This Is Our Home?
2: Yeah, the book is really written for people who want to move in a sustainable direction, but they feel overwhelmed really by the challenge you know, between news headlines and pollution and climate change, you just don't know where to start. So you end up becoming overwhelmed and you feel paralyzed in order to sort of make that first uh, action or that make that first move that feels meaningful and not inconsequential in the face of the enormity of of what you perceive to be the problem. So I wrote it for those people who really want to move in a more sustainable direction the book is written as a story. It's not really written as a scientific book, although I think you're going to learn some things um, as, as the story unfolds. And I really think ultimately, I think it's going to, I think it does help people to think, to act, and just as important as to communicate in a more sustainable direction.
1: I love that. I love that. Um, you know, you grew up in Nassau Village in New York. And you talk about that quite a bit. And I'd love for you to share with us what it was like growing up there and how that experienced, that kind of helped form the basis for your adult work in sustainability.
2: Yeah. So I'm going to paint a picture for you if I could. Um, yes. <laughs> I, so Nassau, New York is this small town in upstate New York. It's midway between Albany, New York and Pittsfield, Massachusetts, about three hours north of New York City. And it's about 20 minutes from the Massachusetts border. There's only one light, uh, traffic light in the center of town. <laughs> and I lived about a half block from that light. Within that light, uh, from uh, walking distance from that center of town was a barbershop, lawyer, schoolhouse, firehouse, three churches, town hall, grocer, gas station, liquor store, meat market, post office, everything you could want was sort of in this Nassau bubble for me growing up in the 1970s and 1980s. And I think there was a lot of towns probably like that. This is, you know, before big box stores and um, the internet and things like that. So you sort of maintained your identity and your your culture and what you did was sort of stayed in that, in that bubble. And it certainly was for me. Now, just outside of Nassau, New York, there's a, uh, there's a, lake called the Nassau Lake. Uh, and it's about about a mile uh, north of the village center. The only rule I knew, Jill, growing up was don't go in the lake. And I didn't really know why. I, I kind of knew there was a pollution issue with the lake, but it was just one of those things to stay out. And um, lo and behold, there was a whole story there of what happened. And I think we'll get into that a little bit later in our conversation. But that issue, uh, the lake is still silent today uh, due to pollution, and um, it's had such a a lasting and a halo effect for for multiple generations that the story is really about me going back to my hometown, back to Nassau, reintroducing myself to some people uh, that I haven't seen in a long, long time, and really uncovering what that story was and what the effect has ultimately been.
1: And it, it's a great story. I really love the way that you wrote this book. The way that you laid it out was so user-friendly and so intimate. You know, I really felt like I was on the journey with you. In Chapter 3 of your book, you make a profound comparison between views on land ownership and preservation by the European settlers of the area where you grew up. And the Native Americans who occupied the territory before Europeans arrived. And I'd love to have you read that section and then it explain to us how those attitudes impacted the landscape of your hometown.
2: Sure. Thank you. I, uh, I appreciate it. So it, it is on uh, page uh, 23 and I'll read it, just a couple of paragraphs. Yes. So it goes like this. The new European settlers believed that individuals had the right to own land and establish permanent settlements. Self-ownership leads to self-action to act in ways that may solely benefit the individual who owns the land to the potential detriment of the community at large. Individual land ownership promoted pure survival of the owner. Land that was not owned by the individual was also less a priority. In an ownership model, land with no proprietor has an increased potential of being less respected, less sacred, less preserved. Conversely, Native Americans generally did not appreciate the idea of land as a commodity, especially not in terms of individual ownership. Land was a common good, like water, air, or sunlight. They believed it was sacred and should be treated with respect. Land preservation, therefore, allowed for long-term survival. European settlers' ownership philosophy, along with their new culture and the introduction of new disease diseases, ultimately combined to push the Stockbridge Muncie Native American people off the land, reduce the population, and erode the culture over the course of many years. Mm. And I, th- I think this idea of ownership um, is something that I certainly have um, uh, aspired to over the course of my lifetime. I wanted to own. Uh, my own home, uh, wanted to own your own car, things like that. I think that's sort of inherent in the American sort of psyche and culture and lifestyle. But I I think when I sort of began to understand, um, that passage and it's sort of a common theme throughout the book, you suddenly realize that the things that are owned, um, have a lot more priority in our culture than things that are not owned. So Mm -hmm. common land and air and, um, waterways and whatnot, um, suddenly sort of become maybe less of a priority than things that are owned. Um, And it makes me think of what happened in Nassau. From 1952 to 1968, toxic waste was dumped in an open pit landfill about a mile north of Nassau Lake. Underwater aquifers and streams channeled those toxic wastes over time to the lake. um, And essentially, the, the PCBs are still there today. Um, they killed the lake, uh, created uh, untold amounts of health issues, killed property values um, and so the the consequence of a non ownership you know no one owns the lake um it becomes less a priority, and things like this can potentially can potentially happen
1: and and I want you to spend a minute talking about what the lake was like before that pollution, because when you just mentioned, you know, the the decrease in property values, I would imagine property values were pretty high in the lake's heyday. What was it like around there before you were told to stay out of the lake?
2: Yeah, so it's a, that's a great question. And it what it did is, trying to figure out what was the lake like prior to 1952, I went back to the library, the the Three room library that I went to as a toddler is still there today. And I went back to those same, to that same library, the same creaky floors, same <laughs> smell of old books. It was just amazing. I felt like I was eight again. Uh, but in those files uh, in, in the Nassau Library, I found a, a 1950, it was, it was like a 1954, 1955 Little League program. And in leafing through the Little League program, Um, It showed all the teams that were in existence that year, but it showed 11 different um, uh, restaurants and bars and hotels that existed around Nassau Lake advertising for the local Little League. And it was such a a great find because it it made you realize what the lake was like prior to the chemicals forcing uh, all of these uh, changes that the lake was a place, it was a destination. It was mm-hmm. a place to, to come for summer vacation. It was a place for businesses to thrive. It's a place for, for boating and, and all those things that you know we all enjoy.
1: Mm-hmm. You use Nassau Lake as the main character to introduce some really important sustainability terms. And I, I want you to talk to us about how the lake's history illustrates the term path dependence.
2: Yeah. So this word is also something that um, is sort of a common theme throughout the book to try to understand what that exactly means. It's a concept sort of from social sciences and economics that essentially says that the outcome of something is often dependent on the path of previous outcomes rather than simply looking at the current conditions. It kind of makes you realize history matters and drives outcomes of today. Now, while change may be possible, the cost, time, and consensus to do so sometimes is prohibitive. And I want to give you two examples that are, are um, in the book. The first one is, in the early 1900s, then President uh, Teddy Roosevelt, who was a conservationist already, made this sort of trip out to Yosemite National Park and spent time with the preservationist John Muir. John Muir is sort of the founding father of the environmental movement in many people's eyes. He's the uh, founder of the Sierra Club. Um, and they spent time together in Yosemite National Park at Glacier Point and Mariposa Grove, and actually, my family and I visited there just three years ago. And when you go there and you see two thousand year old trees, and you mm-hmm. see this these granite rock in the valley, the, the need to preserve is so overwhelming. It was such such a profound effect on on me. But anyway, so the the uh, after that um, event, um, the next ten years for Teddy Roosevelt had a lot to do with uh, building out national parks and preserving land and preserving historic sites uh, and building infrastructure uh, in, in terms of uh, the, the United States uh, Wildlife Federation and things like that. So that trip can very much be looked at by a lot of people as a path-dependent event in terms of what we see today in terms of uh, the, the need to preserve national park systems, wildlife, refugees, and things like that. I'll give you the second example is Nassau Lake, which um, took the opposite path dependent um, decision that happened back in 1952 when uh, chemical companies uh, in in nearby cities decided that they needed to transport waste to Nassau, New York, and dump their waste in open pits. A very different path dependent event happened uh, in 1952 that was repeated over and over until 1968. And the effects of that are still being felt today. So the, the waste that we see today and the inactivity that happens, you know, is, is at Nassau Lake today is path dependent on what happened back in 1952. And I think what ultimately path dependence is about is what decisions are we making today mm-hmm. that could be a path dependent decision for something we look back in 30 and 40 years from now?
1: Yeah, absolutely. And this is where, you know, this this idea of multi-generational solidarity around environmental protection is so important. Thinking beyond our own lifespan uh, is a big component of the motivation and the, you know, the strength to do the things we need to do. Yeah, sometimes know, make I, sacrifices.
2: I, you know, I totally agree with that. I think sometimes when you think about path dependence, it may force you to sort of think in a different way and act in a different way, I think Mm -hmm. it's very easy for people to read parts of the book and say, oh, you know what? We didn't know what we were doing back in the 50s, right? We didn't. The EPA was only formed in 1970. So there was sort of no no chaperones at the dance before 1970, so to speak.
1: (laughs) Absolutely. No, it's a good point. So it's very easy
2: to say that. But, you know, what are we dumping today that could have an effect in 50 years? Good
1: point. That's a really good point, Trent. We're going to take a quick commercial break, but when we come back, we have so much more with Go Green Radio, so don't go away. We're coming right back.
0: Follow Voice America at Facebook.com forward slash Voice America for juicy updates from your favorite radio shows and podcasts.
1: Clorox has been a leader in the cleaning industry for over a century, providing effective and innovative cleaning solutions as customers' needs evolve. The Clorox EcoClean product line offers a disinfecting cleaner, all-purpose, and glass cleaner, made with EPA safer choice and designed for the environment-approved ingredients to help facilities cultivate clean and healthy spaces. Clorox EcoClean, naturally-derived products that get the job done. Learn more at CloroxPro.com.
3: The Go Green Initiative is a nonprofit that works with K through 12 school districts to accomplish two vital goals. To protect children's health from environmental toxins and to conserve natural resources for future generations. We believe no child's health should be harmed at school. So we work to ensure schools have safe, clean drinking water, clean indoor air quality and food supplies that are free from harmful chemicals schools can conserve tremendous amounts of natural resources that their students will need in the future so we help schools conserve energy and water as well as reduce waste these actions also decrease schools greenhouse gas emissions which lead to climate change children in environmental justice and low food access communities are the most impacted by environmental challenges and the go green initiative directs the overwhelming majority of our time and resources to school districts in those communities To learn more and to support our mission, visit
0: www.gogreeninitiative.org. The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. I am so glad you're with us today. And if you're just tuning in, let me catch you up. Our guest today is Trent Romer. He is the the author of a book that just came out a couple of months ago called This Is Our Home, a sustainability story to help you start your own eco-friendly journey. Now, Trent, in writing about the landfill that you were talking about in the last segment, it's upstream from the lake, you discuss a circular versus a throwaway economy. I'd love for you to talk to us about that.
2: Yeah. So a circular economy uh, views all resources as valuable. And ideally it's an economy based on no waste. So the byproducts of one process becomes a feedstock for the next. So just sort of as an example, I always love this examples back in the early 2010s, Timberland, who's the shoe company. Um, mm-hmm. they. They made a um, agreement with a, a tire manufacturer that the tire manufacturer uh, who had used tires would sell those to um, Timberland to make uh, soles for boots out of, uh, out of those used tires. So you're just trying to, to take things that were used in another process and then reuse them uh, as a feedstock for something else. So you're, you're creating this circular flow of materials in contrast to that. Is sort of the linear way that I think a lot of our uh, society and culture is today, which is sort of this take something, make something, and then dispose of it. Um, a lot of things uh, that we all are part of go to a landfill. So this, what we're trying to do in a circular economy is sort of bend that line around. Um, mm-hmm. So instead of take, make, dispose, you want to take, make, and repurpose whatever the end product is into something new. And the result of something that's more linear is, is, is a place like Nassau Lake, right? So these chemicals, these toxic chemicals were byproducts of a process to make something. They didn't know what to do with them. So back in 1952, they transported them 20 miles to, to a landfill. Um, and ideally, what you wanna do is create design with the end in mind. You wanna design things so at the end of life or the end of the process, whatever you're left over with, Could be used for something else.
1: Mm -hmm. Now, Trent, your family manufactured plastic bags and you co owned the company for 20 years. What are your thoughts on extended producer responsibility or EPR legislation that requires producers to absorb the cost of the end of life of their products?
2: Yeah, it's a great question. And I really think this gets back to that ownership discussion. I think companies tend to see ownership up until sale right? They, they mm-hmm. care about the product when they own it, but once they sell it, the product is not seen as theirs. So mm-hmm. it's not owned by them and therefore less prioritized. Um, so I think EPR tries, the correct EPR uh, policies, try to correct this in helping or forcing companies to actually own the product even after the sale. Um, so I think the circularity of materials that we were just talking about is enabled uh, by uh, good EPR uh, systems or good EPR policy that while it creates this circular flow, it also doesn't prohibit a company from from doing business. It's, it's a, a needle tough to thread. There's lots of different EPR legislations. I've listened to your past programs, which are, mm-hmm. are really informative to me. Um, but I do think it is supporting that circularity of material and it gets to that ownership piece that we were talking about earlier for companies to own it.
1: Mm -hmm. You know, I think another interesting aspect of EPR legislation is that it forces companies to rethink design, Um, you know, and and we've seen instances where, for instance, with e-waste, EPR and um, legislation regarding electronics, um, when the manufacturers had to take back those products at the end of life. And they realized how difficult it was to dismantle them, how difficult it was to recapture some of the precious metals and other things that could be used again. They went back to the drawing board with their engineers and said, "Hmm, we need a better design. If we're really going to keep some of these materials in the economy, it can't be so hard to mine them out of the the finished product, and and I don't know what your thoughts might be on on that aspect of EPR legislation.
2: Absolutely, it's essentially taking that externality, right? So mm-hmm. companies are the externality they're they're putting on the, uh, the the public. They're externalizing the cost of disposal and and collection onto the public while they're internalizing the profit. And once you have once you take that external cost and you put it on the company, you know companies are really good at being, um, you know, entrepreneurial and changing things. And I think there's a huge opportunities for companies who embrace it, know that it has to happen and it's coming. I think there's huge opportunities for companies who act on that quickly.
1: I agree. I think that's a great point. Now, what were some of the sustainability initiatives that you implemented at that company?
2: Yeah, so... Uh, real briefly, my my grandfather started our plastic bag manufacturing firm back in 1962. My father owned it for 20 years. My brother and I owned it for 20 years before we sold to a private equity firm. I uh, have, uh, my father's one of 11. I have 32 first cousins. So <laughs> yeah, it was very much and still is very much uh, family owned. It's not family owned anymore, but it's, it's family. There's tons of family um, involved in it. So when we are uh, starting to move in a more sustainable direction back in 2018, 2019, we did a bunch of different things, but I'll just highlight one of them that I think we are most proud of. When you think about the sort of the, the mantra for sustainability in a lot of ways, it's still this reduce, reuse, recycle, right? Reduce is mm-hmm. the first one, right? So we are like, all right, let's- On make- purpose, right? <laughs> yes. So let's make this super simple. So I went to our production manager and I said, Mark- What would you say if I said we wanted to reduce our internal waste by 25%? So for us, that would have been 150,000 pounds of material. So Mm -hmm. we waste 600,000 pounds of material to make about $18 million in sales. So Mm -hmm. I said to Mark, what would you say if if we, we wanted to do that? And he paused, Jill, he looked at me and he said, it would cause us to act in a different way. And I said, <laughs> exactly, right? That's what we need to do. We need to act in a different way. So we did a bunch of different creative things. Simply, we, we ordered less material sometimes where we would over-order material to make sure we figured enough scrap amounts in there. Mm-hmm. We simply just ordered less. Um, so we ended up scrapping less. We had a lot of educational systems uh, and, and, pl- and things that we did for our employees One of the things we did, and I'll highlight just this, is um, we're all familiar with Shark Week, right? I don't really think about sharks other than Discovery Channel's Shark Week (laughs)
3: in July,
2: right? They bring this heightened attention to sharks. We did the same thing. We called it Waste Week, and we did it in the middle of the summer. And we said, hey, look, we're going to bring some heightened awareness to waste in our plant. We did Uh, We had guest speakers, we did uh, gaming around waste, we did fun educational sessions, we got a food truck, we made up t-shirts. And basically by bringing awareness to all our employees, doing some education, it just became so natural and they started to come up with things that they could do to reduce waste. So it took us a year, but we did reduce our waste by 150,000 pounds. And I think doing it in an authentic way like that is so much better. We really wanted to do a few things really well and not do multiple things poorly. We don't not into greenwashing or anything like that. The authenticity of what you're doing is so important. So I just I highlighted that one because that was always fun and it and it and it involved the most people.
1: Yeah. I, I think that's one of the things about waste. I mean a lot of times when you're doing other aspects of sustainability, it may fall within the purview of a very small group of people. It may be a very operational, um, small group of folks who institute the change. But when you're talking about waste, everybody handles it. And so it can be very impactful in getting everybody on board. In, in my nonprofit organization, the Go Green Initiative, we work with K-12 schools throughout the nation. And A lot of times, you know, I I say recycling is our gateway. (laughs) It's the gateway activity that leads to much, much more um, in terms of sustainability.
2: And also Uh, you say to yourself, is this actually waste at all? Right. So you begin to question, why am I throwing this out? Like the tire manufacturer. Yeah. You may have been like, why am I, why is there something somebody else actually could use this and pay for it? So there's a whole element of that too.
1: Absolutely. I, I'd love to get your thoughts because, you know, this segment of the show, we're kind of talking about business, sustainability, and we have a lot of business folks who listen to Go Green Radio. What would you like other business owners to know about your transition to sustainability?
2: You know, it's a it's a great question, but I, as I sort of have immersed myself in this field, and I'm, I'm currently a sustainability operating partner for our private equity companies uh, that so I interact with about thirteen or fourteen different companies. Um, we look at sustainability from a stakeholder view, meaning in any industry or any business, for any organization, there's stakeholders interested in that business: employees, um, customers, supply chains, regulation, public, uh, the public is, communities are all interested in the business. And we, when we ask our companies to look at their business from a stakeholder standpoint they're starting to get pressure or are experiencing pressure to move in a more sustainable direction from those stakeholders. So I think by taking a stakeholder view, you strip out the opinion. You know, this isn't what Trent says. This isn't what, you know, so-and-so says or the newspaper says. What are your stakeholders saying? And get that feedback through surveys, interviews, town halls, things like that. And you begin to give yourself room to sort of move in a sustainable direction. So we really start from that stakeholder standpoint and try and understand the issues they're interested in and then begin to act on the ones uh, that that they're most interested in that also uh, affect the business.
1: Well, that's a great point, Trent. And, you know, if, if the chemical companies that dumped their waste north of your lake uh, in your hometown had been doing that, I don't know if they would have considered your town a stakeholder. And so it's really important for business owners to think broadly about the impact and the stakeholders that are impacted by all aspects of their business. We've got to take a quick commercial break, but we have so much more to talk about. So don't go away, folks. There's more Go Green Radio right after this.
0: A little birdie told me Voice America is on X. Follow us at Voice America TRN.
3: The Go Green Initiative is a nonprofit that works with K through 12 school districts to accomplish two vital goals. To protect children's health from environmental toxins and to conserve natural resources for future generations. We believe no child's health should be harmed at school. So we work to ensure schools have safe, clean drinking water, clean indoor air quality and food supplies that are free from harmful chemicals. Schools can conserve tremendous amounts of natural resources that their students will need in the future. So we help schools conserve energy and water, as well as reduce waste. These actions also decrease schools greenhouse gas emissions, which lead to climate change. Children in environmental justice and low food access communities are the most impacted by environmental challenges. And the Go Green initiative directs the overwhelming majority of our time and resources to school districts in those communities. To learn more and to support our mission, visit www.gogreeninitiative.org.
1: Clorox has been a leader in the cleaning industry for over a century, providing effective and innovative cleaning solutions as customers' needs evolve. The Clorox EcoClean product line offers a disinfecting cleaner, all-purpose, and glass cleaner made with EPA safer choice and designed for the environment-approved ingredients to help facilities cultivate clean and healthy spaces. Clorox Clean. naturally-derived products that get the job done. Learn more at CloroxPro.com.
0: Stimulating talk gets those synapses in the brain firing really fast. All the time. The number one internet talk station where your opinion counts. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: Welcome back to Go Green Radio, everybody. In case you just joined us, let me catch you up. Our guest is Trent Romer, author of a brand new book out called This Is Our Home, a sustainability story to help you start your own eco-friendly journey. I read it cover to cover, loved it. Pick up your own copy. Trent, I was intrigued by an idea that you wrote about, about changing the language around recycling and composting to make it more the degree to which a product is circular. And that would help consumers have a better sense of how likely the products they buy are to truly stay in the economy versus going into the landfill. And I'd love to give you a chance to talk to us about that.
2: Yeah, great. I I, I think a lot of people think that if something's compostable or recyclable, it's also circular, meaning it will be recovered and and made into something else or grown into something else. But I would ask everybody to think about like these two examples, food waste. Are we in our homes um, taking food waste and are we putting them in the garbage or are we trying to compost them? And something like a candy wrapper. A candy wrapper is, could potentially be recyclable, but are we really recycling that? And I think there's a couple of things that are inherent in both these examples. The food waste issue to me is an access issue. It's hard. You know, if you're in a Mm -hmm. a multifamily home or how are you composting if you don't have a home composting facility, there's a lot of places where there's no, you're not getting curbside uh, composting Mm -hmm. available to you. And if you live in an apartment building, it becomes even more difficult. And a candy wrapper is so small, Jill. There's no Mm -hmm. value to it. Right. So how do you get things to be more circular? And first of all, you want to design them to be circular. So I think that's something you mentioned before. There's plenty of packaging, for instance, that isn't even designed to be compostable or uh, recyclable. So designing it that way is is the first step. But the access piece is so important. Um, and a lot of people don't have access to uh, composting or recycling um, and something that struck me was I've been to three different material recovery facilities, which are composters or um, recyclers, one in Napa, California, one in Austin, Texas, and one in Albany, New York. This is where trucks are dumping, you know, every five minutes a truck comes in and dumps all the recyclables and Mm -hmm. then they sort them. Mm -hmm. Jill, they, they are able to sort 85% of what they get 85%. And at the end of the line, they have these neat bundles of paper, metal, plastic, glass, ready for resale. The problem is they don't get enough. So it really speaks to access. Um, I don't think it's a sorting issue. It's more of a, uh, a material issue. How do we get more and more and more material to these recovery facilities to engage in that circularity we talked about?
1: Well, and and there are so many problems. I've been to a lot of MRFs, and I've taken students to MRFs. Actually, on the Go Green Initiative YouTube channel, we have some really cool videos um, that our interns have made of visits to both composting facilities and MRFs. And their eyes were really opened about what they thought was recyclable, but when they talked to the folks at the MRF, what they actually could sell to recyclers or the quality of the compost that they actually could take to a composting facility was very different than what they thought it was. Um, And and it it really opened their eyes. And so um, I think you know, right now, recycling and composting is very zip code specific. So yep. even if you have curbside, you know, service, if you live in a different town than you work, you may have a very different list of what is actually recyclable and compostable in that zip code based on the facilities that the, you know, the the municipal solid waste system has access to. In California, we've made composting mandatory but we don't have enough we're we probably need about 150 additional utility scale composting facilities in the state to actually take in all the composting that we're collecting so in the meantime and what's happening to it? So, I think, you know, it's a really, really important point. But I, w- I want to shift gears now, um, kind of go to, you know, another aspect of access. Um, access to clean air and clean water and clean soil is not equitable in this country. And your book chronicles your travels to places like Love Canal and Pitcher, Oklahoma. What do these super fun sites have in common with Nassau Lake and, and how did seeing these places and talking to people who care about these places impact you, Trent?
2: Yeah, I, this was the fun part of, well, I enjoyed writing the whole thing, but the, I like to travel and I enjoy experiencing other places. And I thought to myself the the Nassau story, which I knew because I grew up there, but also uh, because I was being educated as to what has happened since, is this happening in other places? And lo and behold, come to this t- statistic, which really drove the book, there are over 1,300 Superfund sites in America today, similar to Nassau, and uh, 22% of Americans live within three miles of a Superfund mm-hmm. site. This affects 70 million Americans. So I went to four other, um, uh, three other Superfund sites to try and experience what did they experience, and I wrote about those visits, and the common thing on all of them was quiet. Abandoned, hmm. forgotten, um, silent. Um, there's nothing around. No, there. No one's going to Pitcher, Oklahoma. That that town is now abandoned. Um, no one's going to Love Canal on a vacation site, right? No one's going to Nassau Lake to boat. Um, and one, I sort of share with you this experience. I was in Pitcher, Oklahoma, which is in the upper northeastern corner, very close to the Kansas border. It's a place where uh, mining in the early 1900s produced zinc and uh, uh lead chat piles that built up around the town, forced residents to move out. There was there was too much uh in the water and in the air. If you go there today, there's a, a statue of a gorilla. Um, it's the pitcher high school <laughs> gorillas, 1984 state champs. Somehow it made its way to Main Street and the high school's about the abandoned high school is about three blocks away. It's just a stark, it's the most stark reminder of what was and what is. You know, there is no more football games in Pitcher, Oklahoma, because again, mm. the town is abandoned due to the waste.
1: Mm. That's heartbreaking. And that's so human. And I think that's one of the things that really came through to me in your book was the human impact of environmental degradation. And I, you use the terms uh, frontline and fence line communities. And I want to make sure that our listeners hear you explain what those terms mean and why it's important for us to understand what's happening to people in these communities, whether we personally live there or not,
2: yeah, I think of frontline uh, communities that are are people who experience the effects of, in particular, climate change firsthand. So think about the the subsistence farmer who has different uh, far different patterns of, of weather uh, than they've ever experienced, or coastal communities, or people who experience a higher propensity for fires in their communities. Fence line communities are uh, communities next to industrial sites or disposal areas that neglect in the environment as a stakeholder. And I think this, this fence line and frontline community thought process leads you to how environmental issues really become or are a social justice issue. That the people who had the least to do with the issue are the ones facing the problem uh, most acutely. And I just go back to these Superfund sites you know, if you want to know the effect of fence line communities, spend some time in Nassau, New York, right? This is, you know, the, it's a beautiful lake. You wouldn't know that the property values have, have dropped. You wouldn't know that, you know, all of the, the health concerns and the health issues that have happened in the last 50 or 60 years. So it's just not a Nassau story. It's, it's, a, it's much bigger than, than just Nassau. But I try and use that lens to, to spread awareness.
1: I love it, and I think it's very effective and, and one of many reasons why I'm encouraging my listeners to pick up your book. Now, we are in an election cycle again in the U.S., and we are likely to hear a lot about the role of government in a lot of different ways. Um, but your book discusses pre-EPA practices quite a bit, and P.S., it was a Republican president that instituted the EPA, which in this day and age seems unthinkable. But yes, that's how it happened. And I'd like for you to talk about that and the difference of having a federal regulatory body, the difference that makes. What are your thoughts about the role of government in environmental regulation?
2: Yeah, I just, I think about the common good and I don't know how to regulate. I don't know how we cannot have different rules of the game to um to promote the the common good, that's what the government's there for, in my opinion, is to to set the rules or change the rules to um, to allow a more equitable society and to promote the common good, whatever that may be. And the environmental piece is, you know, fits that that criteria perfectly.
1: Yeah, I I couldn't agree with you more. Um- Your book highlights the fact that cleaning up pollution and environmental degradation can take generations, and this flies in the face of our society's ever-increasing expectation for snappy, speedy results. How do you think we can prepare young people to engage in the work of cleaning up the environmental sins of our past, knowing that they might be old when they finally see the results of their work and their toil? I think
2: about that question and I think of the two, again, I'll go back to these main themes. You know what Superfund sites made me think of is sort of to think in reverse. What don't we want? We don't want Superfund sites, right? So almost think in reverse. Know what we don't want is a great way to figure out what we do want. And then secondly, sort of think about the decisions you're making or thinking about making or part of as path dependent. It puts a little bit more emphasis on maybe what you're doing. So this idea of what I, knowing what I don't want and sort of this path dependence piece, I think those two combine to move you in a little bit different direction. I'm also super encouraged, Jill, by when I was back in the 90s, when I went to Hamilton College, there was no sustainability major. There was no The word was barely yeah. uh, used. And now you can't go to a major uh, college or university without a sustainability major of some kind. So I think the leaders of tomorrow are being educated in it and are going to be, uh, be the ones who really can have impactful legislation, rules, and standardization uh, for, for companies uh, to, to adhere to.
1: I think you're so right, and I, I love that perspective. Um, you know, real quick, before we go to our next commercial break, I kind of want you to talk about life cycle analysis labeling. Um, give us a couple of quick thoughts on that.
2: Yeah, so uh, LCA, or Life Cycle uh, Analysis, attempts to provide objective scientific measure to assess the environmental impacts associated with the entire life cycle of the product, from sourcing to manufacturing, distribution, use, recovery, to kind of give you one measure. And what it would allow uh, uh, consumers to do is to look at that label and potentially buy based on your environmental rating for that entire package. Very similar to the way we buy... um, products based on nutrition you know prior to 1990 there was no such thing as a nutrition label but now it's very standardized we know exactly it is. what it is it's
1: a great may, point
2: yeah we may buy yeah. something based on protein or whatever and we want to do the same thing we could do for, the same you know, thing
1: I mean. for sustainability yeah that's a great point i love it we're gonna take a quick commercial break but when we come back we have so much more with trent romer and his new book this is our home so don't go away folks there's more go green radio right after this
0: The Internet's number one talk station. Number one talk station. VoiceAmerica.com.
1: Clorox has been a leader in the cleaning industry for over a century, providing effective and innovative cleaning solutions as customers' needs evolve. The Clorox EcoClean product line offers a disinfecting cleaner, all-purpose, and glass cleaner, made with EPA safer choice and designed for the environment approved ingredients to help facilities cultivate clean and healthy spaces. Clorox EcoClean, naturally derived products that get the job done. Learn more at CloroxPro.com.
3: The Go Green Initiative is a nonprofit that works with K through 12 school districts to accomplish two vital goals. To protect children's health from environmental toxins, and to conserve natural resources for future generations. We believe no child's health should be harmed at school, so we work to ensure schools have safe, clean drinking water, clean indoor air quality, and food supplies that are free from harmful chemicals. Schools can conserve tremendous amounts of natural resources that their students will need in the future, so we help schools conserve energy and water, as well as reduce waste. These actions also decrease schools' greenhouse gas emissions, which lead to climate change. Children in environmental justice and low food access communities are the most impacted by environmental challenges. And the Go Green Initiative directs the overwhelming majority of our time and resources to school districts in those communities. To learn more and to support our mission, visit www.gogreeninitiative.org.
0: Streaming live, the leader in Internet talk radio, voiceamerica.com.
1: Welcome back to Go Green Radio. We are having a great time talking with Trent Romer um, and talking about his new book, This Is Our Home. Trent, one of the things that I found so inviting about your book was that you were so vulnerable and so transparent in talking about your own journey with sustainability and how your path of discovery. Um, You know, people enter this freeway (laughs) on a number of different exits and in different times of their lives. And I really appreciated your authenticity and talking about what sparked you. Do you have a story or a quote that you could share that kind of captures your journey and the things you've learned?
2: Yeah, I thank you for asking and I appreciate your your commentary, it means a lot. Um, I got an opportunity to apply to be a TEDx speaker um, in 2022. And I, along with a partner, um, proposed our sustainability talk idea to TEDx Boston and we were actually accepted so it was super exciting, but mm-hmm. the nerves started to begin <laughs> as soon as I uh, we got accepted. We did a lot of practicing, um, but boy, when we showed up at the MIT um, Media Lab in November of 2022 and the the third floor elevator opened up, it really hit me. There was you know, uh, a professional photo shoot to go through. There was a makeup station. There was this huge spread of food. You go into the to the uh, media center and there's 500 seats around the dark stage with tedx boston behind and the big uh screens uh behind the stage with the big red dot right in the middle <laughs> of the stage and three camera pits and there was speakers every 15 minutes so they spoke for 10 minutes and then five minutes uh and uh transition and you realize then you knew before but there, this is not a powerpoint you know you are showing Mm-mm. up with you know, you got to have it memorized. And mm-hmm. so I get backstage uh, about 10 minutes before we go or ready to go on. And I start to chat with the person in front of me. And I and I invariably said to them, what do you do? And she looked at me. and She said, I'm an astronaut. <laughs> and Jill, my nerves went from nine out of 10 to about a 15 out of 10. I excused myself. I went to the MIT bathroom and just had to <laughs> deep breathe and go over my lines, um, came back out. It went as good as I could have hoped. It was a tremendous experience. But I tell you that because on the way home, I thought to myself, what would I have said if she asked me what I did? And Mm. I think I would have said, I am not an astronaut. (laughs) And (laughs) I think that's the point. You don't have to be a MIT professor or a CEO of a national brand or an astronaut to really make a difference. Um, I think everything that we do can be path dependent know what we don't want and i think you can have an impact and influence in in whatever you're doing
1: i think you're absolutely right and and i think one of the messages we have on go green radio is even if you don't run for office even if you you know aren't taking the final vote um It's your county or your city, um, you can absolutely influence those folks as an everyday citizen by showing up to meetings and speaking about these kinds of issues. I do it all the time. There's PFAS uh, in my drinking water, and I have been you know, the town crier for about four or five years now on that. And so, um, and things are moving. We're getting treatment facilities um, installed and things are happening. Wells have been shut down and they're being relocated. So um, everybody has a role to play. That's why we started public education to begin with, so that we had an enlightened and engaged citizenry to keep democracy strong. We've got to be enabling people to make good decisions. So that you know that is something that I think your book helps to achieve, and I think that's such a lofty um, achievement. Uh, and and I really thank you for that.
2: Well, thank I you. Would, I, one yeah. of the one of the questions that you had, I know, was this connection to my first book. Um, and if I could touch on that.
1: Yes, absolutely.
2: So my first book, I did all. we did all these things as a company to move in a more sustainable direction from 2018 to 2020. In all my travels, I began to chronicle and blog about all these travels, and I essentially put them all into a book. The cover of that book showed a kayaker on the front of the book in this sort of serene setting. I got so many people, Jill, asking me, who is that on the cover? Is that you? <laughs> and I thought to myself, if I wrote the book the way I wanted to, I was hoping the reader would have uh they they would see themselves as the person on the on the cover to have their own journey and apparently the way i wrote the first book people weren't it wasn't having that effect so i wrote this second book and the second book is about the reader it's about trying to get the reader to uh, start their journey um and the first book is more of a business book so there's a connection be- between the, fir- the the first and the second
1: there is and and i i i started reading your first book after i read you know this one and and i see that i see that that connection. Um, For you, Trent, personally, was there a moment in your journey that really accelerated your move in a sustainable direction? Was there a pivot point for you?
2: Yes, I can definitely look back and see that. There was something inside me, probably 2010 to 2015, where I was uh, the owner now, along with my brother. I just didn't feel great about the product we made, but I just didn't know really what to do. And nobody was pushing us to do that. The June 2018 cover of the National Geographic showed a plastic bag, um, grocery bag, sticking out of the ocean that looked like an iceberg. And all it said on the um, cover was plastic or planet. That cover really uh, brought uh, to light the... Um, how much plastic was escaping, uh, collection systems and how, how it proliferated in our, uh, world, uh, from toothbrushes to everything. Um, and it really made me realize that we have to do something. We have to move in a sustainable direction. It really marked for me, sort of a watershed event that it's time to move and, um, and try to engage myself in the process.
1: I love that. I love that. That's, that's great insight. You know, there is a, a sustainability term called the precautionary principle. And I feel like our whole conversation has been leading up to, to this term. And I'd love for you to talk to us about it and how we, as individuals might be able to apply it in both, you know, maybe our advocacy and public policy, but maybe even more importantly, in our own lives.
2: Yeah, basically, I, I always think about the precautionary principle is, is sort of this thinking approach to slow down Explore a wide range of outcomes, increase the number of people in the decision-making process, and really consider those second and third effects that may happen down the line. Um, So you 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 sort of have this more holistic approach to sort of the decisions that you're making. And quite honestly, Jill, I've always been this busy thinker. Like I just want to check things off and move on to the next. Mm -hmm. Right, cross it off and keep moving. And it, it really ties into the book because I ignored Nassau Lake for 50 years of my life. I've been by that lake, Jill, 5,000 times in my life or more. <laughs> I've never been on the lake up until two years ago. I never invested myself in the story, never invested myself in trying to help the situation because I, was, I guess I was too busy to think. And I think the precautionary principle brings that to light. And I think the book is about reflection. It's about thinking it's about a little bit more longer term that I think, especially for me, than my brain was was, uh, always (laughs) thought.
1: Yeah, I I feel the same way. And kind of what did it for me, I think, what brought me, you know, onto the on-ramp of the sustainability freeway was having my children. I have three adult children now. And when I began to think about, you know, the environment and its impact on their future, I was really stunned that I couldn't necessarily count on anybody else to ensure a, a bright future for them. And that's why I ended up starting the Go Green Initiative in 2002, because I really felt like there were other people who felt the way I did. And unless we banded together, um, we weren't going to get the job done of preparing a better future for our children. Trent, I want to thank you so, so much for coming on the show today. This has been an awesome conversation. I could chat with you all day. Pick up his book, This Is Our Home. And thank you to our listeners for joining us as well. You guys are amazing. And I love hearing from from you at gogreenradio at gmail.com. We're going to be here same time, same place next week with more Go Green Radio. And until then, have a wonderful week and do something in your life to go green.